Uh, let's pray really quick, and we'll jump into this. So, Father, you know these are crucial, uh, pressing issues. I pray that you would help my words to be true and helpful and uh, economic, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the title that I was given. This is actually the title that I wanted to uh, use. Preparing your children to live faithfully in our world by equipping them to understand God's word, think clearly, and love people, no matter what false teachings the world demands they espouse. But it was wise probably not to use that as a title. So the underlying foundation idea I just want to start with is this. If you don't know God's word, then you don't know anything. Right, So the world system that we live in is absolutely permeated by, by lies, shaped by lies, and permeated by lies. And sorry how small this, this is. I, I misinterpreted how small that would be, but let me just throw a couple scriptures at you here. We're going to do a lot of scripture. John eight forty four. Jesus said to a crowd standing around him, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He said this to a you know, crowd. Crazy. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan's the father of lies. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the entire world, our whole culture, lies under the influence of the father of lies. That tells you the culture is going to be a culture of lies. That's what it says, Right? And 2 Corinthians 4, 4, whose minds the God of this age, another term for the wicked one or the devil, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Right? So there's just three scriptures. We could have come up with others. The further from truth things get, the more Satan can tell lies and the more he can tell ridiculous, blatant lies. He can get away with ridiculous, blatant lies the further he pushes a people from a general atmosphere of truth. So he can tell people that a little boy can turn into a little girl. And they will believe him and they will feel that to be a powerful, important idea. And that's just the truth, right? The more he can just tell utterly obvious lies, the more you know. We're, we're in a place as a people where we've been confused and so the starting point for this as Christian parents is for us just to, just to have a general apprehension that our culture has lost its sense of how to understand anything. The fact that this would be a workshop we would have to have just tells us that's where we're at, right? So here's two Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So these Proverbs tell us that if you give up the fear of the Lord, you give up all wisdom and all knowledge, right? And that means you won't know anything, knowledge, and you can't figure out how anything works, wisdom. And so if that's the case, then you lose the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. You either lose the ability or what sometimes happens to people is they just refuse to recognize the the difference between good and evil. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you're like, you know what's right. And you watch the person go, you just watch them shift their mind. I refuse to see what's good and evil. And then you end up getting things backwards. You end up calling good things evil and evil things good. 
And then what, then what happens is you're not able to do good anymore. You lose the ability to actually do good, which means you can't ever figure out how to fix the problems in society. You know things are wrong, but you don't know what to do about it. And it's because you've lost the ability to do good because you refuse to recognize the difference between good and evil. And I mean, if that's not the world we live in, right? There's people around who, who genuinely want to fix the problems in society. But what happens is you just end up doing more evil. All your solutions make things worse because you don't know what good is anymore. And good sounds like evil to you. Isn't this so tragic, isn't it? So when someone says to you, oh, well, this is the good way that would help, you go, oh, no, that would, that would make people commit suicide. And you just don't know anymore, right? Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Woe, uh, sorry, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Here's Jeremiah 4. For my people are foolish, God says of Israel. They have not known me. They are silly children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Here's Malachi 2. And Proverbs, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have you wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. He celebrates them. Or where is the God of justice? In Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So that's the, 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 just the truth of, the, of what happens when we start calling good evil. What's the takeaway from that here? Or I should say, first, God's people are called to know the difference. So our calling is to be different. Here's Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. And this is a great definition of maturity here in Hebrews 5. Who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And Romans 12.9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor, right? Push away, detest what is evil, and cling to, bring it to yourself and hold on to what is good. So God's people are called to know the difference between good and evil and then to be able to act accordingly to promote what is good. It's not only mental knowledge we're after. We're after the ability to do good, to promote good in the world. So to sum all that up, if you give up the fear of the Lord, you give up all wisdom and knowledge, and that would mean that you don't know anything and you can't figure out how anything works. And then you lose the ability to tell the difference between good and evil. Or like I said, you refuse to learn it and recognize it. Then you end up getting things backwards and you call evil things good and good things evil and then you lose the ability to do good in the world, to promote good. Which means anybody who's in this state is not a reliable guide. And this is key in terms of the parenting discussion. Here's Matthew 15. His disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? It happened a lot. And on this occasion, this is what Jesus said. But he answered and said, 
Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. I do think that Jesus' teachings about Pharisees don't map very well onto cultural conservatives today because they're not a powerful force in the culture. They map exactly onto um, the human rights campaign and the LGBT movement. Those are the Pharisees of today, demanding that we live according to their morality. Jesus said they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So since God's people are called to know the difference between good and evil and to act accordingly, that means we must be people who do not listen to people who don't fear God. Right? Baseline. And instead, we let our way of thinking be shaped by God's word so that we can understand God's wisdom and know how to do good and not do evil. So here's point one. We need to help our children see and know and feel that the world around them is unreliable. It's a blind guide. That should just be like, that should become second nature to them. And that God's word is the only reliable guide to understand our world. So Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That should just be like, in the air they breathe, right? Not the counsel of the ungodly. So point two. Therefore, specifically for today, we must be able to help our children understand the Bible's teaching about gender and sexuality and that that's our only reliable guide. The world is not a reliable guide. You can't ask the gender unicorn for advice, right? He is not a reliable guide, the gender unicorn, because he, he puts light for darkness, only the word of God. This has to be just sort of what we're imbibing and what we're giving to our kids, right? So what does God's word say on this? And again, this could be several, you know, this could be a whole seminar on what God's word says. Um, but let's just talk about gender quickly first. The Bible says that man was created male and female. So we know we could go to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. But here's Matthew 19. Here's Jesus himself. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is really important. We'll talk about gender here for a second. Before we even talk about marriage or any of that. Our culture says that there are two things in this discussion, right? There's gender. You all know this. Which is who I think and feel myself to be on the inside. That's gender. My inside feeling, right? What I, what I think, who I am. And then the second thing our culture says is, you know, they, however you want to phrase it, biological sex, right? Which is the way my body is shaped and the way it works relative to procreation. But the biblical truth is, and this is key, there's not two things. Like, we can't actually fight from that. That's already, already compromised area. I already compromised thinking. There's not two things. There's no such thing as gender, which is separate from biological sex. Remember, our culture is permeated by lies. And the lies go all the way down to the foundation, all the way down to the root of who you are. Satan lies to us about what we are. And he says, you know you're actually two things. And Satan promotes, you can find life by separating the immaterial and the material part of who you are. What do we call it when you separate the material and the immaterial part of a human being? What's that called when that happens to you? When they get separated? 
That's called death. Thank you. You've heard me say this before. That's called death. You ever thought about that? Gender ideology is an ideology of death. That's what it is. Separate the two, and that's how you'll find life. And the Bible says, no, no, no. That's not how it works, right? So one basic place um, we can look for understanding this, as I said, is Genesis 1 and 2. So when Adam was created, and then Eve was created, how did they know which one was a man and which one was a woman? The only, they w- only way they could know is by the shape of their bodies, and again, the way their bodies worked in terms of reproducing. And then you run the thought experiment. They have their first kid, the first couple kids. How do they know if that baby is a little boy or a little girl? Well, the only way they could know is by the shape of the body. If that baby had the kind of body that when it grows up, it will be able to cause someone to become pregnant, that baby is a boy. And if that baby has a body, can you believe we have to say this? But we do, don't we? You ever get confused? You're like, wait, it's confusing, right? Don't feel, it's okay. Don't feel like you're a dumb Christian if you get confused. These are powerful, powerful lies are confusing. Imagine what it felt like to be in Nazi Germany when the lies were going out. But there are a lot of Christians that started getting confused, right? We think like, oh, I wouldn't have been confused by that. Really? Right? We have our own, we have our own Nazi propaganda we're working against. It's all powerful. It's okay. But you got to step back to God's word and you go, they have a baby and that, body, that baby's body, when it grows up, it will be able to become pregnant and conceive and bear a child. What did they just have? The only way they could have known is by the shape of that baby's body. They had a girl. And Adam and Eve understood that there was no such thing as someone who had one kind of body but was another kind of person. Because the kind of body that baby was born with showed the parents and then showed the child as he or she grew which of the two kinds of humans that child was. The boy's body meant that the child was a male. Because having a male body is an essential part of what it means to be a male. That's what it means to be a male. The body was the gender. The body was the gender in this sense, right? And so this is the only way to make sense of all the Bible's teachings on marriage and sexuality. For instance, the Bible's prohibitions on homosexual sexuality only make sense if we understand that the way a person discovers if he or she is a man or woman is by their body. Otherwise, the teachings on sexuality don't make any sense either, right? So here would be a college way to say it if if we were in a college classroom. Gender or sex, either one, is a biologically discovered reality, right? Our bodies signal to us which of the kind of human we are. I might say that if I was in a college classroom. And our bodies cannot actually send the wrong signal because that's not how these things work. According to scripture, you can tell a man because he has a man's body. And actually, all of creation works that way. You can tell you're looking at a squirrel. How? I would laugh, right? How do you know you're looking at a squirrel and not a dog? Because of the squirrel's body. It's not that I'm oppressing the squirrel and telling the squirrel it can't be something else. It can't be what it wants to when it grows up because it didn't watch enough Disney+. Plus. It's because that's how reality works. And it is, right, in some schools, if, if, a, if a kid comes in and says, I'm a cat, we can laugh, but you know what's happening, right? You're a furry. You know, different kind of soul, too, too sold, right? All these different things people are saying, I think is the term. You have to call that kid a cat. But we know we're not looking at a cat because we're looking at a human body. 
And I know I'm looking at a boy because I'm looking at a boy's body. Now, our world likes to reason from, they like to find the one exception and use the exception to break all the other obvious things down. So you may, you probably know that there is such a thing called intersexuality, it used to be called hermaphrodite, hermaphroditism, right? So, so someone can be born, you might know someone this happened to, where you look at their body and you can't tell, very small percentage of the population, and even sometimes the chromosomes of that little baby are ambiguous. What does that tell us? It does not tell us that we can't know the difference between a man or woman. You can't reason from brokenness. There are such a thing as Siamese twins. But that doesn't tell us we can't know if humans have one body or two bodies. It doesn't undo everything we see in creation all around us. All it means is for that person, God will help them. If they bring themselves to the Lord and they say, Lord, the brokenness of sin got even into my chromosomes. I am part of the 0.001%. I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. I need you to help me know if I follow you as a man or a woman. God will help that person. He'll help them. He loves them. But he won't say, ah, well, the issue is we don't know about men and women, so there's nothing wrong with you. No, he'll help them in their brokenness. And on the issue of distinctions between men or women, here's Deuteronomy 22.5. Scripture explicitly points to the fact that to blur the distinction between male and female is against God's purposes. It has always been a pagan uh, concept. You can look up a paper called Androgyny, the Pagan Ideal. There's a professor at some university did a study that Uh, Pagan temples often had androgynous people in them. They would erase their gender and they would serve their gods as elevated human beings, like a higher form of humanity had transcended the gender binary. This is not a new idea. It's a very old idea, right? Always been a a gateway between the spiritual world and the physical world, people who had erased their their gender. And Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. That word abomination is the strongest word in the Old Testament for God's disapproval. It's not used of things like uh, breaking the Sabbath or leaving your neighbor's ox in a ditch, right? Those, are not, those things are not called abomination, but certain things are. And so you know God is very serious about something. Something's very dangerous and harmful and unholy if God calls it an abomination. So that's gender. Let's talk about sexuality for a second. The scriptures say that sexuality is precious and powerful and holy. So because of that, sexuality requires that it be protected with a special container. This would be a way to think about it. Special boundaries. And that container is covenant marriage. Only in covenant marriage is sexuality safe. Otherwise, it becomes really dangerous and really destructive. So the container... For it, the only thing that keeps it safe is lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. That's what keeps the energy of sexuality safe. You can think of nuclear energy. Very powerful force can be a powerful force for good in the world if, and only if, it's kept in a container. But if you have a Chernobyl situation and that energy escapes the container, all it does is lay waste to the surrounding countryside. And the truth is, Satan knows sexuality is more powerful than nuclear energy. It would be better for us to have nuclear meltdowns all over the country than to let sexuality out of its container and see what happens in the world, which is exactly what we've done. Why is our world the way it is? Because the energy of sexuality is running all over the place in the streets, in our college campuses, in our elementary schools, behind every closed door, and it's radioactive, right? It's meant to do powerful, good things in the world. Fill the earth and subdue it gluing men and women together in in faithful love, homes that raise 
little kids to know God, worship, the church, neighborhoods, communities, businesses, nations, everything from this, from this love kept safe and guarded. But if you take the container away, everything breaks down, doesn't it? And so we're seeing that, right? And again, the Bible's definition of marriage is one man and one woman for life. Partly because part of marriage and part of the purpose for sexuality is the bearing of children in order to fill the earth. The Bible's clear from page one. Here's 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There's the definition of marriage. One man, one woman. Jesus said it in Matthew 19. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his singular wife. Right? That's God's definition. Let the husband render to his wife the, do, the affection due to her. So here it is within the container. Likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's marriage. And here are the explicit statements against using sexuality outside of that. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, Leviticus 18. It is, here's the word again, abomination. Leviticus 20. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be on them. And Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what was shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So any sexuality outside of marriage is dangerous and it uses a holy thing in an unholy way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And these are some of the terms the Bible uses for this sin. You see them highlighted there. Fornication, adultery, several terms for homosexuality. And you see that it's set there in 1 Corinthians 6 in a list of a lot of other kinds of sins. Um, all of us can find ourselves in several of those categories pre-Christ, right? Uh, some of us find ourselves in just about all of them, right? And that's true because Paul says, such were some of you. Christians have always come from those groups of people. And then he washes us and he sanctifies us. But if the world tells us that those things are washed and sanctified, now they're robbing us of the grace of God and the power of God, right? And they're telling us that God is all acceptance, but no power. No, God is power, right? To change us and set our ships right. So if this is the Bible's clear teaching, let me just break down now a few takeaways, I think. What does this mean for us as parents? First, the thinking of everyone outside of Christ is saturated by stories, like movies, right? Stories and ideas that switch good and evil. That's what all their stories do. So we must not allow the world to saturate our children's minds. Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. The amount of time that we allow our children to spend watching media produced by unsafe people, or it could even be reading books, right? Although video games and media are way above that for most people. The amount of time we allow our children to spend in taking that kind of media will be direct, re, directly related to how much influence the world has over their minds. TV, movies, YouTube, TikTok, all social media, tons of video games are the main way that the, world's, the world forms minds. You, uh, 
this is a different kind of an issue, but obviously we'd have to include a lot of what happens in public education today too, although it's very different having to send your kids to public school than it is sitting your kids in front of TikTok. They're not the same thing. We just need to acknowledge that though. We, we cannot give our children over to the things that are coming through media. If we do, we can't be surprised that their minds are shaped by those media. A mind shaped by those things will find God's way of thinking in the Bible really strange. The Bible won't make sense to them, right? It's going to seem either illogical or stupid or evil. That's what the Bible will seem to them. Instead, we need to do what the Bible says. We need to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6. Which means from an early age, their world, Pastor Joe was just talking about it, needs to be saturated with God's word. And that means that mom, or, mom and dad, too, or, or just mom, depending on your situation, or just dad or grandparents, whoever's raising these kids, will also themselves be saturated with God's word. We're not going to love entertainment or, or sinful things that contradict God's word in these areas. They're not going to see us taking that in and enjoying it. A second, it means that we're going to read scriptures to them from the earliest age. We're going, to tr- we're going to get the scripture to them and trust the word of God to do its work. And they're going to hear the Bible read and explained from the beginning of their lives, from their earliest memories. And then we're going to let the Bible shape our way of living so that they see the word of God actually, actually saturating family life. They're going, to, they're going to, one way I like to say it, they're going to breathe the air of God's word and God's world. That's going to be the atmosphere in their home. So then as all our choices about work, and family time, and education, and entertainment, and ministry, and church, all those things are shaped by God's word, our children are going to experience a life then, a world, in which the Bible's teaching about sexuality and gender makes sense. Right? It's just going to make sense in the world they've grown up in. It's going to seem probably to them like second nature. And all of this is going to include teaching them explicitly then about what it means to be male and female, and what marriage and sexuality are. From an early age. And I think just a practical key is the Bible helps us do this. Like, I don't have to go outside of the Bible to teach them about these things because the Bible talks about these things a lot, doesn't it? You ever try to read the Bible to your kids and you'd be like, I can't read that to them. Oh, I can't read that chapter either. You're like, they're like, why are you turning a page? You're like, no reason. The stuff that the story talks about, you're like, don't feel like reading to them. You know what I'm talking about? Right? But actually, we need to stop and go, wait, why is this stuff all over, especially the Old Testament? Because it's all over the world that we live in. Because God knows what we need, doesn't he? He's like, why are you skipping that? Now, there's times and places. I didn't read Sodom and Gomorrah to my son when he was four, I don't think, right? There's times and places, like you, you, you tear it out. We can talk about that. But one thing I just want to say is we might have to wish that we, we might wish, I should say, that we, that we didn't have to broach these topics with our kids when they're so young. Like a lot of us are like, oh, you know, he's only he's only six or she's only 10. Like, I really don't want to like get into this. It feels like wrong. But I think we need to view, we need to think like missionaries in other cultures think. So if you're a missionary in another culture, you take your kids to some other place. And a lot of times those cultures have things going on that are, we would consider weird or dark. They might even be sexual. And you, you know, your kids are going to get exposed to them. So you end up explaining to your kids as a missionary, why the people in the town or the city are doing these things they're doing, right? Because you're a missionary. Like, well, we don't, we're not from here, but this is what the people here do. They don't know God. That's why we're here. We're missionaries. We want them to learn that this is crazy or this is evil, right? We need to think like missionaries. This isn't our culture. And we, I think the sooner we sort of be done with that, and we need to say to them, 
they don't know God. Why, why does the little girl in your second grade class think she can become a little boy? I really wish I didn't have talked about this. But you're eight, and I do. Here's what's going on. And this came up in the last one. I do think we need to be able to discuss transgenderism with our kids by the time they're nine or ten, max. But think about all the things you have to understand to be able to even have that conversation which means you have a schedule now. If I have to get there by then, when do I have to start talking about what we would call like the facts of life? Why, do I, why can't two men be married? Like, big why. Well, I mean, part of the reason is because two men can't make a baby. Well, guess what? I really wish I didn't have to talk to my five-year-old about what makes a baby, but won't the Bible help me do that? Yes, it will, right? So I, I recommend using the scriptures when you come to Genesis 1 and 2, guess what? God made the male and female. Remember the first time I explained to one of my boys the difference between a boy and a girl, because we were in Genesis 2, and he was like, it was a mind blower to him. Because I had to tell him, well, this is what's different. And he was like, and I saw him, like his little brain, like did a like, what? Like, but where do I want him to experience that? Do I want him to experience that alone with a phone? Do I want the gender unicorn to tell him that? Or do I want his dad to tell him that? Right? His mom. Do you know what I'm saying? Do I want in God's word where it's safe, where he can go, girls are different than boys, and then he can read Leviticus 19 with me the next time around, and we can talk about what the sodomites wanted to do. And we can talk about why you can't wear girls' clothes. All in the word. It's safe there, right? It's not a, it's not a gross movie. It's not sinful people producing it. It's not propaganda. It's truth. It's God's good creation, and it's everything sin-ruined. And, he's, and you just use the Bible to teach your young kids, and it'll be okay. And you know what? They'll be seven, and they'll understand things. And they won't be scared when they run into weird ideas. They'll be like, I know why that guy looks like a girl. I know what's going on, right? You just make your kids strong in the Word. And then you're the place, you're the one who explained it to them, not someone who hates them and hates God, right? So if we allow scripture to shape our family life and to form our children's minds, part of what's going to happen is they're going to learn to love people. So not only will they understand what it means to be a man or woman and what marriage is and what sexuality is, but they'll also know how to love all kinds of people like Jesus did and how to interact with people who need Jesus and whose lives are dominated by sin. The Bible will equip them to do that. The goal is that their lives be separate from sin, but not separate from interacting with people who need Jesus, right? The goal is not that they be, you know, right-wing bloggers railing against how messed up the world is. That's not the goal. The goal is that they be like Jesus. And maybe they're going to be like, a, like an eight-year-old like Jesus who can handle talking to the little kid on the street who says, call me Zizer. Right? I mean, I, all of us hope that doesn't happen, but don't we want kids that are equipped at that level to be able to do this? that they would be able to love all kinds of people, that they would be able to move through their world, which is full of all different ideas and practices in terms of sex and gender, the way Jesus moved through his world. Totally free from lies, free from sin, and able to connect with all kinds of people in order to help them know God. So that means, number five, we must also prepare our children to be misunderstood, excluded, rejected, and slandered. We have to tell them that if people are mad at them, it doesn't mean they're bad Christians. Jesus made all kinds of people angry, 
right? I did young adults for a long time. Younger Christians struggle with this. They think that if the world's mad at you, it means you were a bad witness for Jesus. You were judgmental. No, no, it might just mean you're like Jesus. Because the world actually hates Jesus. That's the truth. And Jesus loves the world, but it's not reciprocated until they repent of their sin. And we have to prepare our kids to make a living, to identify with Christ, to love the family of God, all while being marginalized for their identity as Christians. And, you know, maybe revival's going to come. I hope the Jesus revolution sweeps the theaters and it happens again. And the nation, it's happened before in American history. The nation turns back. It could totally happen. I'm not a pessimist about the future, right? And maybe some of us are going to experience this less than others, depending on where you live or the kind of work you do. It might not, right? It might not all be the same everywhere. But we should at least be thinking in terms of preparing our kids for this because the chances are they're going to face some kind of exclusion at the very least for their identity in Christ. And then finally, we need to weigh our options in confusing and difficult situations. So I think a lot of times we're going to say, I'm going to pray and I'm going to take the path of faith. For instance, at school, right? So what do you do if your kids are in public school and they're teaching these things? That's one kind of issue. Or they're demanding that our kids speak and act in certain ways. That's another kind of issue. I think that we pray. We refuse to ask our kids to compromise. We trust the Lord. And every situation might be a little different. But we're going to make decisions based on faith. And we're going to trust that the Lord will protect us. You know, you think of Daniel. His parents are killed by the Babylonians. And he's taken away into a powerful, compelling, uh, evil pagan culture to live there with a couple friends. And he faced crossroads where he had to make decisions that, I mean, he didn't know that he wasn't going to get killed for refusing to eat the king's food or when they refused to bow down to the statue. You pray and you make the hard decision and you trust God. Isn't that like the whole Bible? I don't know what's going to happen here. If we do this, then this bad thing will happen. And the person of faith says, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know, I know what I got to do right now, right? So let me give you just some, ta- some top takeaways before we roll into Q&A, I think for young kids, keep them away from media that forms their minds to be confused about gender and sexuality. I don't think we can say this enough. Teach them the scriptures in all different ways so they can know who God is and who they are. I recommend the New International Reader's Version, NIRV. It's uh, like a third grade or lower level of reading. You don't have to translate. Like translating ESV or New King James for little kids when you're tired after a day of work and you're trying to read it before bed. It's like falling asleep, saying nonsense. That was my experience. Got myself an NIRV, and I could just read it right off the page, right? Uh, Don't shy away from talking at appropriate times about what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. And then for older kids, again, generally, keep them from using media that will lie to them about gender and sexuality for entertainment, right? That shouldn't be our entertainment. Let me get lied to, and let let me drink in powerful lies to be entertained, right? Uh, think in terms of quality, what kinds of messages are being promoted, and quantity. How much of this are they taking in? Always help them interpret and understand what they're seeing or hearing when they do encounter these things, right? Don't leave it to the world to explain it to them. And then communicate about the messages that the world sends and the ways people all around us think and live. Again, use the Bible as a background and a guidebook for your conversations. And the older they get, the more frank you can be in your discussions with them, especially in the scriptures. And assume that they're running into people who are involved with pornography and homosexuality, gender confusion, and even other types of really dark, spiritually dark sexuality. We just need to assume that they're running into people who are involved in those things. We need to talk to them about 
how to handle those encounters and conversations. You know, what are you seeing? What are the kids talking about at school? Any kids looking at porn? Any kids talking about, you know, boy and girl and how they feel inside? Any of that stuff? Like, uh, you know, we, I just think we need to communicate to them that our homes are sa- a safe place. We're a safe person to talk to. My wife, really early on, she was good about saying to my, to my boys, like, we can talk about anything here. Anything. You can ask us anything. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm... I'm glad you thought of that, right? Wish I thought of that, but I'm glad you thought of it, right? Good point. Just set that tone. Like, we talk about everything here, right? There's no secrets. What are the kids saying at school? What are they showing to you at school? What are they texting each other about, right? And then get them involved in church as a young teen. Insist that they stay involved while they're under your roof. You hear people say, like, well, he's, you know, he's, he's 13. I, I want him to, it's got to be real inside. I don't want to be a Pharisee. That's the wrong category to think in. It has nothing to do with what's real inside of the heart of that 13-year-old, right? When he's 20, he can figure that out. It has to do with he lives under your roof, and you want your kids in a place where there's an atmosphere and, and a bunch of people who think like you, who, who are letting the scriptures shape their thinking. So they're not crazy. Maybe they're crazy at school, depending on where your kids go to school. Maybe they're crazy in their neighborhood. Maybe they're crazy at work. But they're not crazy at church. At church, everyone is sane. And I mean that. And, there's just, and the youth pastors talk about the word of God. And they're serving Jesus together. And they're singing praise songs. And the Bible is known and understood. And things work. And so you got to just have your kids, wherever you're, whatever your church is doing, most of us here at Calvary, get them to youth group and make them go. If they're 18 and they tell you they're not going anymore, uh, you cross that bridge when you, when you come to it. That's fine. But if you've got a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, they do what you say. Right? You can't lose control at that point and just turn them over to the world, right? So we have to learn to ignore the blind guides and not be intimidated, intimidated by them. The word of God is a lamp for our feet and our children's feet. So before we just open it up for Q&A, uh, here's three books I recommend as resources. We recommend you can get the First two, I believe, in the bookstore. The third one, I just don't think we'd sell that many of them, so we don't stock it, but you can get, it might be in there actually, but you can get it definitely on Amazon or whatever. It's academic. Uh, it's awesome. It's big and thick and research, and it's got tons of like ancient Greek stuff and all that. Hebrew, The Bible and Homosexual Practice by Robert Gagnon. Kevin DeYoung wrote a much shorter book, and he actually gets a lot of what's good of, of Gagnon's book into his book. And I just recommend parents read that. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Uh, it's way more doable in terms of length. And Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury, we, we will give out to like a 14-year-old. So your kids can read that. It's, they could give it to their friends. And probably a good one for parents to read too, just in terms of not feeling like a hater because of what the Bible says and what we're saying to our kids. So there we go. 